KOW. Welcome. My name is Gaetan Vernat, and I'm the director of the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery in Toronto, Canada. So I'm so pleased to be in conversation today with the artist uh, Mario Pfeiffer in the context of Art Basel. And uh, Mario is a Berlin-based artist and he's um, represented by a gallery, KOV. So um, good afternoon, good day, uh, Mario, how are you? I'm good, hi Gaetan, hi everybody. Greetings from Berlin. Yes. So before we start, I just thought that um, we, I would give a short bio so that we set the scene and people understand the nature of your work. So Mario Pfeiffer is born in Dresden, Germany, and he studied at the California Institute of Arts at the State Schule in uh, Frankfurt and a university, the Kunst Berlin and the Academy of Visual Arts in Leipzig. He lives and works in Berlin and he's had solo exhibitions um, in all over the world, but in many institutions in uh, Germany, uh, also in New York, at, uh, in Chile, in Switzerland, and, um, and also uh, has been part of Biennales in Berlin and has shown his work in Lagos and in Lisbon at the MAT and then uh, MMK and, uh, and also MMK in Frankfurt and also at the power plant. So um, really, um, Mario, it's really nice to speak to, to you today. And um, as we started thinking about, you know, I started thinking about what we could talk about, I couldn't stop myself but think about um, the unprecedented uh, times in which we're uh, all um, living. Um, were the brutal death of George Floyd on May 25th in Minneapolis, Minnesota, has sparked worldwide protests and brought to the forefront, you know, questions surrounding police brutality, the um, um, militarization of police and their actions and the racist policies toward black bodies, black people and indigenous people here in Canada. And I think um, the subject is, is an American subject, it's a Canadian subject, but it's a worldwide uh, a subject of the systemic racism. And, um, and so I think, you know, as I think of, of today and the fact that now, you know, systemic racism has entered the mainstream and Black Lives Matter has entered the mainstream, even though what I really wanted to, us to talk about is your, um, your film again, I thought that we couldn't, I couldn't resist talking about your work, your video work of 2015 titled Blacktivist, uh, which is a two channel video installation that you produced in collaboration with the Brooklyn rap group, the Flatbush Zombies. So can you tell us the context in which you decided to produce this work in 2015? Yeah. Um, the context was, in a way, not so different than from today. Uh, it were the shocking images of Eric Garner, who actually said, I can't breathe. I was living at the time in New York uh, for a couple of years, and I was invited by the uh, Ludlow City Egg Project Space of the Good Institute to produce a solo show. And it was a, a long interest also of mine to produce a, a music video as a piece of art, as an installation. And since uh, Black Lives Matter protests happened in 2014 and 2015, and then with the death of Eric Garner and the police brutality involved in it, I thought it was quite an interesting moment to reach out um, yeah, to musicians to see whether it would make sense to produce a music video that tackles these issues lyrically, poetically, but also um, create a visual structure that would incorporate body cam footage, um, violence, gun production, militarization of police, in order to present a work that is really timely, but that also reaches out to other communities than just the art world. What mm -hmm. was very important for me is to understand the music video 
as a vehicle of information or visual information, but also factual information, but also emotional information. And uh, to produce a piece of art that could travel to other places than just a museum, but also to think about a museum as a place of usually high culture and to confront an institutional structure uh, with a very different format, a five minute music video, but as a two channel video installation that would somehow, yeah, bring a different dynamic in, into the institutional space to address an, another audience that maybe is not so frequent to institutions of uh, visual arts, but most important to set a message that po police brutality is something to tackle inside our, our societies. And parallel to the police brutality issue is also the issue of um, gun manufacturing of the weaponization, not only of the police, but also of private individuals. So within Blacktivist, you see images of a company that is called Defense Distributed, who produced 3D milling machines and a 3D printer who can actually produce either a weapon itself or in a, a receiver for an AK-15. Yeah, so the larger issue was, how can you live in a society that strives for more weaponization, for more guns, in order to feel safer. I think this is a double circle in which um, more guns will never bring more safety. Yeah? And it goes back to the Flatbush Zombies, um, whom we researched among many other musicians, and we started a conversation of uh, what is actually for them at this time in history the most important. And that was a stop and frisk policy, racial profiling, police brutality in their own neighborhood in Brooklyn, in bed where I was also living at the time. So it was very important for me not to make a work on my own reflecting mm -hmm. um, these issues and these dynamics, but also to do it in collaboration. And of course the rappers have an, an enormous part in this project because they wrote the song, they composed the song. It's basically their message that we visually wove together. Yeah, so also the storyline of the video incorporates certain identities of the rappers, but also certain perspectives. Yeah, for example, we have one hostage scene in the video and who, who's been taken hostage? It's Barack Obama. Yeah. It's, it's about, in, in 2015, somehow the disappointment, for example, of these rappers in their community, in their president, who didn't save them, who didn't protect them as much as he promised it. So five years back, I feel like a deja vu today. Yes. Um, even though with another president that, you know, has caused much trouble for, around the world, but even 2015, it was already super urgent and super present in my life and in many other people's lives. Um, so on the one side, it's highly frustrating to see history repeating itself in such a quick manner. On the other side, maybe 2020 is a moment where Black Lives Matter has created a stronger dynamic within many societies. Yeah? And uh, for me, our collaborative work of uh, Blacktivist is somehow, unfortunately, it's updated again each time I, I hear news from the US that concern police brutality. Yeah, George Floyd is, is, a, is, a, is a massive cause, but um, let's not forget other victims. So each time I get these news, I, I think about re reconsidering my own work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the videos we used 2015 were of all uh, the violent videos from police camps available at the time. Yeah, so it's a found footage video in a way. It documents and represents the media coverage of these atrocities, but at the same time, it brings them into a larger context. Yeah, so it's a reminder, and unfortunately, um, there is always a new version of that reminder. Yeah. yeah? And um, yeah, for me, it's been in so far an, an interesting work because. Um, I was working with musicians, with rappers, from, from a position of a German white male artist. Yes. Yeah. But nevertheless, um, I think the mission we undertook was collaboratively to address it. So we also interviewed the rappers about their fears on society, about their hopes and their wishes, about their own um, responsibilities towards their community. Yeah, because in rap music, you always have the community. You have Jay-Z or Kanye West who talks about their community. And it's always the question, what do they actually do? Yeah, somehow they are leaders, but I think the Red Flapper Zombies in that sense are very progressive because they really actively work with their community and they're very close to their own community, even though they're lesser known rappers. Yeah? And I think um, 
to also have them really being part of the visual strategy and also editing with me the video was a wonderful process because there are so many nuances that go deep into the music scene, but also deep into black culture, a culture that I'm not part of, yep. um, but a culture that I would say is part of my life. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, as an artist, I'm also interested in uh, reflecting contemporary issues, very, very burning issues, whether they're in Germany, in the US, in Chile, in Brazil. It's always a question that when I enter a society is, uh, what, is what is really most, most pressuring and how is an artist able to, let's say, initiate a project and then more or less being part of that project that takes on its own dynamic, yeah? So when we released the um, YouTube video on the Flatbush Zombies channel, it counts uh, up until today about 3.5 million clicks with uh, around 4,000 comments. And uh, if you read these comments, it's really super interesting and also heartbreaking how yeah. music video can address social political concerns, yeah, from, from very diverse angles. And I think in that sense, it's a piece of art that is very close to real life, to a, a, a pretty wide um, terminology of what culture is. Yeah, it's, it's very inclusive and in a way, you know, it's, it's, it's carried also through the music. You know, it's not necessarily a piece that is only on my shoulders. It's on several shoulders. And I think that makes it very dynamic and approachable. And uh, for me, it's been a gift to be able to do that. It's always a risk taking because these things can also fail. But from the engagement of, of several audiences, I must say it's one of my most exhibited works, but also this online audience is really, really dynamic and uh, people take it very seriously. Yeah, what is being said in this video. And I think therefore it was very successful uh, under the definition that it tries to do something. It tries to address something and there is feedback, yeah? From the digital community, but also from the physical community. And it's something challenging for any museum to show it because it is from its way it's been edited, it's been presented, uh, the outspokenness, the directness, it is challenging, yeah, to show this work. Yeah, I think I think that um, I could um, within our gallery, I could see the physical reaction of people who are not used to rap videos, who are not part of that scene, kind of like be shocked, but then stop, listen, and then people would always be nodding their head. So it you can you can kind of see the rhythm of how people get accustomed to this work and engage with it, and. Um, it's, I think it's, you know, in thinking of how institutions are now asked to answer, you know, what are you doing? How are you part of the solution? And how, which is, you know, museums are not accustomed to doing this. They're not accustomed to be asked by the general public, possibly an unlearned public to say you have to account for us and what are you going to do for us? And I would say that in, um, you know, you seem to be as a, as an artist that you constantly put your, and I know that you've told me, and I think it'd be interesting to talk about this, you know, that, um, you know, being uh, born and raised in, in uh, Leipzig and then, you know, the, the fall of the Berlin wall, how that prompted you to like kind of, and you, you said to me that your parents kind of encourage you to go beyond, you know, your world. And so I'd like you to tell us how, you know, from being in Leipzig, deciding to Brooklyn, then there's the work in Chile, and then, you know, we come back. This is how within our exhibition, I really like the three, the three works that we showed. So how do you why do you put yourself at risk? Why do you, what's this yearning from you as a, as a citizen, a, a global citizen, as a human and as an artist, you know, what, what is this propensity that you seem to have to like leave the comfort of your known environment to go elsewhere and to put yourself at risk? Because, you know, I could just imagine, um, you know, um, you know, you're white German men and you knock at the door of the, of the, the, the flatbush zombies, you're not in a known territory. And how do you negotiate that? And why do you negotiate that? 
Yeah, it's uh, of course uh, quite a big question. Um, back to my childhood. So I grew up in uh, East Germany behind the wall and uh, my parents always had this thriving notion of traveling to Europe. That's why they gave my sister and me foreign names. So I got an Italian name. My parents never, never went to Italy until I think 1991. And um, for us, it were the, um, the falling wall was really a very emotional way to, to conquer uh, or to, to, to reach out to the world that we just knew from postcards or from, from some images, and most of them were probably black and white. So there was a desire to also, yeah, get to know other things, yeah, in a very naive way, but also to, to put yourself into um, new environments and also to learn from them. I think that is one um, core idea to travel, to expand your vision and to understand the complexity of the world through going to different places. And if you're lucky, you can engage with people and you can uh, listen to them and you can learn from them. I think this is pretty much what I do most of the time, whether abroad or within Germany, is to set myself um, into a situation where I have, let's say, an intuition that, you know, something is, um, is interesting or, or there is something to negotiate uh, in small, but also for a larger community or a society. So in, in terms of uh, blacktivist, it was, I was living in New York and I was asking myself, okay, what is the most pressing issue right now? It was the Black Lives Matter movement. That was something that I thought was um, already then, um, probably too late, but it happened. Yeah, mm. but um, it was all over the place. And it's of course something I, I deeply support. And, um, but in a way, I was also thinking what is, what, what is meaningful right now as an artist to produce and how can my means contribute to a larger uh, a case or storyline and how do I want to occupy an institutional space with art in New York. And um, so these questions all led to the idea to produce something that addresses um, these issues of police brutality in the Black Lives Matter movement but not necessarily being inside that movement, movement as an activist or an organizer, but, all, but still as an artist. But yeah. also to um, you know, build, build a team of, of different speakers with different perspectives, with different skills to address that issue vocally together. Yeah? And um, quite honestly, I, I, we really researched for a long time which musicians could we actually address and which would have the energy, which have the skills, which would have somehow uh, a group of followers that, that this matches could go big. And um, because we didn't want to do something elitist for a small audience in a small space, it was more about reaching out. And um, it took me three weeks to, to write an email to the rappers because that's not the language I usually use. Or in, in other words, it took me a long time to write just a normal email. Yeah, and that's also a learning process. How do you approach somebody? Um, how can you put your cards on the table? Because I try always to put my cards on the table and say, this is what I do. This is what I would like to do. Would you be interested to help me with that or be part of it? Yeah, yeah and it took another three weeks to, to get an answer, which was positive. So in these uh, six weeks, I was sweating like crazy. Yeah, and if you don't get an email answer within five days, you think you failed. That's it. And I would also leave it there. If I fail with something, I usually leave it there and I rethink the whole approach. Yeah. And uh, of course, it's a, it's a long, uh, it's about 10 weeks negotiations over dinner tables and really getting to know each other and really being very transparent, you know, of, of what this is. And it, in the end, it's, it's a music video and an installation and a record. Yeah. So it's, it's also in a way set up though that it must benefit several um, participants, yeah, and um, not only intellectually, but also in the way you produce it. So in the way it is a shared authorship, yeah, uh, without the Fabri Zombies, there wouldn't be that work, but I assume that without me, there wouldn't be the visual storyline in the way it is, yeah, <laughs> because it is not a standard music video. That's yeah? it. But um, the most important thing is that you, that you find a way to agree on something and, and, and put it out. And if you go on YouTube with a piece of art, I mean, you immediately hit like a huge audience. I mean, we had within one hour, 100,000 clicks. I wow. mean, that's me, huge. That's, that's something. And that this message is still stable and it's still online and it's still something 
yeah. know, to look back in a, in a rather short history. I think it's really intriguing and, and shows the power of this collaboratively produced work. Yeah. yeah. In other places, it's really, in Chile, it was um, in the work approximation, it's, it's somehow rooting back images of a German missionary with indigenous tribes uh, in the southernmost urban environment in uh, Chile and Porto Williams. And I brought back parts of the archive, which is in Germany, to the tribe mm -hmm. and on a digital device. So there's the digital aspect and uh, yeah, 10,000 year old culture. And to re reflect on um, these images from an archive on a digital device where you don't even have internet, you know, that brings in another complexity. It's also about access. It's about reflecting. It's about um, having you know, having a discourse about a history and a culture that by the Chilean state is actually demolished over yeah. the last century. And the museum uh, in this side is actually empty. <laughs> so in a way, what, what I try to do is to, to start a conversation about digital artifacts and the meaning of them. Yeah, the, the distribution qualities, but also the endless and in, infinite um, access to to a culture, yeah. Because if the museum is empty and only has copies of artifacts, um, then and, and these originals are in Germany, then then you actually have a problem. And I am part of that problem, and I want to make this problem with my skills visible. That doesn't mean that I can solve the problem on my own, but at least I can make it visible. I can give it a certain attention, and then locals have to take over that discourse. Yes. I can only show the gap and say, well. The key is that we bring this archive from Germany back to that place. And that's something you have to work on. Yeah, you, you give them the, the, let's say you, because of the time that you spent in that space, you give them the road map, but it, it becomes the responsibility of that community to do the work. Right. So I, I think that um, it's interesting what you said about the different uh, modes of operation and the different models. So from, you know, a video for Blacktivists to uh, a record, to an artwork. And I want us to speak about the piece again, which is a work that I first encountered in 2018. And it was a commission from the 10th uh, Berlin Biennale. And I was struck when I saw this because at that time in Canada, uh, the Canadian government, the recently elected Canadian government was, you know, putting in place all of these um, structures in order to welcome Syrian refugees and for families to become sponsors for these people. And it's, your work struck me because it really made me think about, you know, when we say that we're welcoming refugees, what do we really mean? And how are we really welcoming them? And when do these refugees needs and values become part of our own citizenship and our own like it's it's the individual and the community so really i want you to tell us about this work again which i think is a profound work that has touched so many people and resonated also um, within that exhibition that we we presented together so tell us you know what's the story behind uh, the tragic demise of Shabazz Saled Al-Aziz, who was a Kurdish-Iraqi refugee in Germany. Yes, I first encountered the story of Shabazz Al-Aziz, I think in 2016, when I was researching a very different project, actually about right-wing populism in East Germany. So I did a lot of interviews, made a nine-hour-long installation with, yeah, rather right-wing speakers um, in reflection by conflict researchers, sociologists, um, mayors, etc. So I, I listened to the radio in the car and uh, I heard about an attack of four men on a Kurdish Iraq refugee in a supermarket in a small village close to my hometown. And I thought, wow, this is, this is totally shocking. Um, and the story continued. So the four men actually bound him to a tree at the parking lot in front of the supermarket. And it took 25 minutes that the police officer showed up in order to take him into custody, but not the four men police didn't even take their credentials. So that story kept me haunting for a long time. About nine months later, um, 
There was another um, report in the news that um, the body of Shabazz al-Aziz was found frozen to death in another forest. A week later, the case opened because the four men were meanwhile uh, charged with, um, how do you say that, yeah, kind of kidnapping and, and also beating him up. Um, uh, it also surfaced a YouTube video which documented the entire scene inside the supermarket. So there was suddenly visual evidence, but the uh, judge um, stopped the case or canceled the case uh, after like less than four hours. And his arguments were there is no public interest, even though it was on, uh, in major news outlets. The key witness is not present in the room because yeah, he died a week ago or like several months ago, but they only found his uh, corpse a week ago. And if the four men somehow would be charged with some kind of criminal act, uh, it would be a minor charge. So somehow the work of the court is not justified um, by the amount or like, let's say the sentences to be expected, if at all. And this was uh, celebrated by really right-wing media outlets by the lawyers of the uh, attackers. And I thought, okay, this is a very crucial question for our society because what was key to the situation was the argument by the defending lawyers that it was civil courage, that the four men acted in favor of, a, of the community. So they would protect the cashier against an aggressive and violent asylum seeker. Um, but of course, there were other statements which would say, well, you know, you took the freedom to move from that person, you beat him up, you, you slurred at him, you bound him to a tree, this is not lawful. And this question could not be resolved by a German court, which, yeah. is a, which was a big scandal. Yeah. And, uh, but the case was never reopened. There was no spokesman really for Shabazz al-Aziz. He, um, he suffered from epilepsy, also during his uh, odyssey through the Balkan route, uh, 4,000 kilometers to arrive in Europe, but he was in treatment in, in several hospitals and even the doctors give very different statements on how to handle his disease and where to put him and how to supervise him. So his, his personal supervisor in the end was a right wing uh, member of the AFD who also ran for a mayor's office, for example. So somebody in charge of his destiny, of his life, of his supervision was somebody who had extreme positions against uh, refugees, asylum seekers. And this shows somehow the complexity that if somebody arrives in Germany and enters the system of supervision and assistance, might end up with supervisors who do everything that to help him. Yeah. He was put into a hostel inside a huge forest. And in January, the owner of the hostel went uh, on a holiday for one month. And that's the moment when Shabazz wanted to visit other friends in another hostel on the other side of the forest, and he went missing. Hmm. When his body was found by two hunters, uh, they didn't find his cell phone and his wallet and his ID card. So it was never investigated how he died, but it's somehow very strange that the most important tools that he used, he was messaging a lot, were never found and nobody really looked for them. So that entire story um, was of course part of the news media, but journalists somehow could only report so and so much about it. So I um, approached two investigative journalists to, to work with them on a script. So they gave me a lot of access to other files, to other interviews. I met um, connecting members between Shabazz family and the journalists. And we were able to construct um, a very detailed um, script that documents what happened to Shabazz at which time and which um, issues came up with medics, with lawyers, with um, assistant workers, with people who supervised him on how to spend his money. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so while the story unfolds, we see actually a failing system to assist refugees. And you also see a failing community that is not able to identify somebody who might need help, but is, is not a criminal person or is not a violent person, but he has been criminalized and um, described as a violent person by bystanders who would not somehow critique the four men who preparedly entered the supermarket. Yeah, it was a setup, that is very clear. And um, 
what is what was then interesting for me as an artist not to, to only tell the story and in reenactments. So we rebuilt a supermarket. We shot it with three cameras from these three different perspectives. We actually gave also a lot of space for different arguments. So we have the lawyer, we have the three men who attacked. They, are, uh, they all share their testimonies. Yes. Um, but as I said before, if a court cannot differentiate between civil courage and vigilantes, I yes. think then it's up to our society, to our community to, to take on such a case and discuss it at least. So I, I invited 10 members for a jury to, to be present during the entire film production. Uh, they wouldn't really know what they would get into in detail. They would be introduced like, okay, we are looking at the theater play, which is filmed with actors and non-professional actors. And I'm very interested how you would respond to what you see. Yeah, because it is actually about violence in public space in a supermarket, but it's also about being passive in a situation where you might be afraid yourself. Yes. Yeah. We all know these situations in a supermarket, somebody has an issue, there's a, is a violent reaction, and what do we do? Do we look away? Do we stand away? Do we engage? Do we say stop? Do, do we call the police or the ambulance? What do we do? The people in that supermarket didn't do anything. That's Actually, many applauded afterwards. Yeah, so this for me has been really haunting because I always thought the supermarket is such a... Community. Public, yeah, it's yeah. a community place. It is private, but it's also public. Everybody goes there, from the lawyer to the doctor to the policeman. It's a place um, that we all frequent. And so it is a place where I would like to always feel safe. Yes, exactly. And I also want everybody there to be safe. I don't differentiate between anybody. <laughs> I think, <Yeah>. think that <laughs> what struck me when I saw the, the work, and I wonder if you, um, you want to share, we could, uh, we could show... Uh, an excerpt of it, if you want. Yes. Uh, but what shocked me was, it, I, and I think most of the people that came to see the work at the power plant, is it made me think, what do I do when I'm in a supermarket and something like that would happen? Would I sit and be silent? Would I be calling 911? Would I intervene or not? And you realize how our society, we're all so busy that at one point we forget to like look at what's in front of us. And to me, that's also like, there's many elements in your work that are, you know, the failure, like how everybody failed that man, you know, whether it's the German government who's like, yes, we want to bring you in, you're a refugee, we want to make this a safe place for you, and doesn't even bother to, to, um, to choose, you know, somebody who's going to be his sponsor that is somebody relevant who actually is interested in his plight. And this, you, you basically decipher the series of failings to this man, which gives way to his death. And basically, if it hadn't been for you in a certain sense, you've given life to this person. Again, you've brought his plight back to the surface through an artwork and through an ability to um, make people sensitive to these everyday events that it's so much it's so easy for us to to forget them because it's in a newspaper it's you know it's happening far away but it's it, it's systematic of our society so I think that if you show the 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 excerpt I think it's going to to um, enable us to uh, as a catalyst for the continuation of our conversation. Yeah. Just, just before we show a little trailer, um, I wanted to continue that the 10 people I invited who were present at the film production that served as a jury, they were then brought back again into the set on an individual basis and they just shared the emotions of what they saw, what they think, but also based on their own life experiences. So all of these 10 jury members once left their home to live somewhere else that might be inner German migration between the two Germanys in the 80s or it might be guest workers that came from other countries on invitation to the GDR, for example, or political asylum seekers, or people who even crossed the German wall twice and were both on both sides in refugee camps. Wow. So I was interested, is there a community, are there people who have a completely different understanding of such situations than I do? Because again, I produce also this German work within Germany, close to my hometown from a very privileged position. 
Mm -hmm. I was interested to use the set we built, the script we wrote, to let other people reflect on it, mm -hmm. to learn from them. And so I met them over six months. It was a really long research. And I interviewed them all at their homes for 90 minutes. So we had a very strong relationship. You had to gain their trust also. Yes, but I also had to prepare them to, to, to trust the camera. Yes, exactly. Because the camera is, in my case, um, a trustful accomplice. Mm -hmm. Because the camera will allow us to speak to somebody out there. Mm -hmm. What is also so interesting that you will see in the trailer a few logos and a few things. It's a, it's a piece that was commissioned by the Berlin Biennial. We Don't Need Another Hero was the yes. grand title. But it's also being co-produced by German-French television. And that was for me also very interesting because I just had to make sure there's no compromise in the edit. But a piece of art will not only go on YouTube, it will also enter television. Television. In a very radical manner and will reach a, a rather large audience and um, and that is something that I think is also very unique and very special because it should create a debate and it should create visibility of certain issues, you know, that we as artists can radically phrase. Yeah. Okay. I'm showing now the, the teaser, yeah? Yes. Ich habe mit seiner Familie telefoniert. Zu diesem Zeitpunkt ist Shabazz tot. Er heißt äh, Shabazz Salah Al-Aziz und wurde 1995 in Soleimania im Irak geboren. Ihre Bonuspunkte. Do you speak German? Your, your bonus points here. Was wollen Sie von mir? Wissen Sie, was ich von Ihnen will? Stell die Flasche hin, nimm dein Telefon und geh. Mach Wahal Zivilcourage. Ich bin erschüttert. Statt Hilfe, es wurde selbst Justiz gemacht. Der einzige Wahl war, wer geholfen hat, waren ein Freiwilliger. Die Behörden waren total überfordert. Das Vertrauen an dem Gericht ist eigentlich verloren gegangen. Also Selbstjustiz für mich ist es, wenn einem was getan wird und äh, der Staat das nimmt ihm das Recht nicht, dann äh, nimmt er das Recht für sich selbst. Ich glaube, dass es mucho viel Zivilcourage braucht. Es braucht viel Valentia, um enfrentar esto. Das Land, was mal meine Heimat war, kriegt faschistoide Züge. Okay, there we go. Yes, so um, we, it's, it's an, it was, I thought it was important for people to, who haven't seen the work to actually understand. And so in the short excerpt that we've shown, we shared, we see the set that you've constructed. We see, I guess, the, the two main protagonists, which are, those are the professional artists. And then they're, they're, they're actors that are well-known, right, in Germany? Yeah. And then, and then one thing that I think is interesting, so we see the group of those volunteer jurors that you've researched, found. But then you also, when you were talking before, you also mentioned, um, that all the, you know, besides our two professional actors, all the other ones are not professional actors. So how did you find, you know, the person who was going to um, play the part of Shabazz who, and, and then the vigilantes and the different, um, right. how did you find them and how did you get them to agree right. to play these nasty roles or these, you know, to relive the trauma also? Yeah. So first of all, we have two rather well-known uh, actors for TV and uh, cinema in Germany, Mark Waschke and Daniel Sude, larger 
larger known now for like series like Dark or mm -hmm. Unorthodox. So um, they are somehow representative of the mainstream media, but also in the case of Denanesh, she is one of the first uh, black TV uh, police officers in Germany. So she also, you know, brings in a storyline and Mark, Mark Raschke brings in another storyline of a white male police officer. So they're somehow confronting themselves inside the film with their role that they're usually assigned to, but they also deal with them. <clears throat> we have one person that we quickly saw in the teaser that tells the story of Shabazz. He is actually himself a refugee German uh, living in, in uh, Berlin, Germany, who served as the translator between the investigative journalist and Shabazz family. He was the one who had to tell the family that Shabazz deceased. Mm -hmm. He's a real person. He went through a similar destiny. He speaks the same Kurdish dialect than Shabazz. So he was like somebody who was still alive, but who has the complete understanding what Shabazz flight was like. Yeah. But he also had all the information from both the journalists and the family. Yeah. So he was a very valuable person that I convinced to work with me on this project, even though he's never been in the film, he doesn't, doesn't want to be in another film, but he understood it's Shabazz that we work for. Yeah. And he brought in a lot just by being there. You know, I don't give somebody like him a, a direction. I just tell him, this is where you can sit and this is where the camera is and now we listen to you mm -hmm. yeah? and he chooses even to speak in German his German is really wonderful and um, and he could even um, spoke in Kurdish or in English yeah so it was about listening to him but making him comfortable that the film set is not is something very artistic or very artificial it's maybe very dehuman <laughs> because it's just an illusion. Yes. But use it to reflect on real life. Uh, yes. That was very important. And, and he did it really in a wonderful way. And we, are, we became really strong friends and we, yeah, we are often in touch, you know? I mean, this is also why I do these projects. You get to know very unique people and um, that's, that's a true pleasure. With the men who play <laughs> the vigilantes, it was a very different process. What we did is like we, have, we knew who they were because they were published on YouTube. So we asked the casting agent to reach out through the database to men who represent that kind of German physicality. Yes. And it was actually interesting because usually the casting agent will present you 30 people and they will all fit. And they will all do it because they like to be part of a film and they get paid for it and they get hired and you know, it's fun. But we only found three who would like to play vigilantes. And not because they would like to act like vigilantes, they understood what it okay, meant. It is a form of civil engagement because this is a film that shows us what violence in public space means. We are here to present it and we'll do our best. But we had a lot to step off once we really told them what the role involves and what it's based on. Yeah. So I tried to organize that entire film shoot and production as a way to reflect on something in a society with civil courage to say, we need to look at that. And in order to look at it, we need also people who are violent. Yes. We also need to, people who say something with prejudices, yeah, in order to dismantle them, to make them visible and to really tell our audience, how would you act? Would you say that? Or would you say that? Do you ally with this person? Or do you prefer that newspaper uh, report? This is what the film does. And it dismantles a lot of standpoints uh, in order to come back to you as a, as a viewer and say, okay, now the question goes back to you. And these 10 jury members, they help us to be emotional because what they share is so unique and so real. Um, they probably wouldn't say it uh, in a coffee shop on the street, yeah. but we managed that they would say it to the camera because they trusted the camera that whatever they will share, it will change the audience. Yeah in a way to reflect. We don't want to manipulate the audience what they have to think, but we want them to open up and to take that issue into their life, to go out in the world and be prepared to act non-passively. Yeah, I think, I think your, the mastery of your work is this ability to keep the viewer engaged and we really feel the emotion of your jury members. And you know, what I thought was also interesting 
is that when people think of Germans, you know, they don't necessarily think of those, some of the jury members you had is what people have in their conception of what right. is German, right? But the majority people were like, oh, you know, this, there's a black man who's speaking in a perfect German. There's an Asian woman. There's like, this is Germany. So I think that uh, the emotion that we feel that you were able to capture. And I think what was interesting also is that through your, your, the concept of the project and this, this ability to bring in different parts of society, you know, your, your actors that are professionals, the others that are not actors, you, you really show, it's like a mirror of who we are. And then really you leave us with this position of what is my role into this situation? Right. What is my role in stopping these types of actions? And as a citizen, and that's why for us at The Power of Land, this is the perfect type of work because we really want active listeners, active right. visitors who actually leave the gallery kind of stunned and uh, I remember on the opening, there was one, uh, one visitor who was in tears um, because they have family that are, um, you know, live on indigenous reserves and, you know, countless of stories of people found frozen to death, you know, on the land. So I thought that that was a really interesting way. And so my next question, because again, the same, again, again, um, the same way that with Blacktivist, you created, you know, there was a record, there was a video. In this case, you have the museum piece, which is the two channel video. You have the single channel that you've shown in festivals or as, you know, projections. And then recently, um, you turn the whole thing into a play. And for me, what's interesting in that is that you did not stop so in a sense the and i don't want to be critical of the german you know uh justice system but the mm. german justice system failed this man right yes. and you as an artist you show a kind of civil courage by deciding to take this cause create an artwork then it's getting shown in museums TV, but now you you bring another level to it, um, which you know reminds me of Greek tragedy uh, and the role of theater, and then you make it into a play. So why this play? How this play? And um, yeah, so tell us about the transformation from the artwork to the play. Right. One thing to add, I think the German justice system didn't only fail Shabazz; it failed our society. Yeah. yeah, and and that is um, in a way why I think a society needs to stand up, mm -hmm. and I think this situation we can also adapt to any place in the world. We cannot always trust our governments. We cannot always trust our judges. If we have the feeling that they will not do their job as they are assigned to by the constitution, we need to go out, and we need to protest, and we need to make our voice being heard. The voice of an artist is heard once the work is shown. Yeah. So and. Um, I would not stop. But what is so interesting about again is that it has started to have numerous life siblings, you could say. It has a life and, of its own and it keeps... Exactly. And it is, it has something to do with what the work tries to do and how it engages numerous people and also institutions. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the, uh, the, life, the life experience, as it's called, it's, you can name it a play, a theater play, a performance, or a live experience, which I really like, was commissioned by the International Documentary Film Festival in Amsterdam, ITVA, the biggest documentary f uh, film festival in Europe compared something like to Hardox in, in Canada. And they saw the film and they actually approached me and said, well, this is a film that has so many qualities. We are having a live section. Could you imagine to bring this back to stage? You could do whatever you want. Um, you know, uh, we'll support you with that. And I thought it's really, really fantastic to, to have um, like an audiovisual theater in which you would stage that. Mm -hmm. And uh, since we had the script, it's actually manageable with the cast. Um, I decided to have a, um, a stage prop, a stage design with a tree. 
It will be the same story will be told again from a different angle, from the angle of a tree. There's a tree, like in Samuel Beckett, mm -hmm. waiting for a doe, and we will center everything around the tree. The tree will always be visible, but there will be different light scenarios for the tree. And we'll have one uh, uh, cast from the film, The Royal of Shabazz, which I didn't uh, mention before. It's played by a young uh, student at the time, uh, um, Dylan, who's also a great friend by now. Um, I met him in a coffee shop because I reached out through another artist, Hiva K, mm -hmm. Kurdish in Berlin. I said, Hiva, I need somebody from the Kurdish community in Berlin to perform in a film. This is the story because it's based on Shabazz Alassiz. We need somebody who is sensitive to understand what Shabazz went through and where he came from to communicate that to our audience. And he gave me a few telephone numbers, so I called somebody and this person called somebody and I met uh, Dilan in a coffee shop. Um, not so far from my house. And I explained him the thing and he's a, you know, uh, like an, <clears throat> a programmer. He's never been on a theater stage. He doesn't know what acting is, but our feeling was really good. And he said, I really want to do that because I think it's really important to also to my life. Yeah. And, um, and he doesn't regret it until today. He would call me and say, can we bring this project to Kurdistan? Yeah. Yeah. So what we did in Amsterdam, I casted two kind of known um, theater and TV actors in, in Amsterdam, but I switched the roles. So it's a black man and a white woman. And wow. they, they speak Dutch and English and uh, they tell the same story, but with a, with a Dutch twist. What we also did is we casted instead of 10, five audience members that would be filmed live in the theater after the performance. Mm. So they again, wouldn't know what this is really about but they would know these are the issues we are dealing with. It will be a theater play. You will just sit back and watch, but we need your voice to open up a debate once the lights go on. So five people in the audience, again, with different backgrounds and with different homes that all live in Amsterdam, but they have lived somewhere else at some point in their life before. And they have very different life stories, but they are sensitive to be attacked in public space for different reasons. And they were open minded to to sit there and wait until a camera will go on and live broadcast their statement to the entire theater audience. Also, this theater space was designed with seven screens. So we would show different excerpts of the film, like little testimonies. Um, so the audience would get the full story with, with live elements. Yeah, And they were sitting in a U shape so that once the lights go on, they would confront each other. So if you want to have a debate and everybody just looks front, it's very hard. Yeah. So we said, okay, they need to almost sit like in half a circle, like in the Greek theater, in order to not talk with me or the actors, but with themselves. And we managed to have five very, very strong and emotional statements. I wouldn't know what they say. I was shocked. I was in tears myself at the premiere because they could have also said, I don't know. I, I have no empathy for, for the story. It doesn't really That's matter to me. But you know, I think what they shared uh, was extreme and, and, and beautiful and painful at the same time. And um, it allowed the other audience not to sit back passively. It continued for 30, 40 minutes to discuss what they thought, how this is happening in the Netherlands. And if somebody had similar experience or somebody wouldn't know what to do. And this theater piece would help them to start thinking about how they would act. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also was a new experience for me, but very, very, um, yeah, special and very valuable. So that we are working on touring that format. Then Corona came and some plans couldn't, <laughs> couldn't be realized yet, but it's in a way sadly timeless. Mm -hmm. It's a, village, a story from a village in East Germany that really talks global. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that is something also shocking to me in a positive way that the project is really relevant. But at the time in the car, when I listened to the radio, I said, this is so shocking. In the US, they would call it the lynching. In Germany, it means somebody bound somebody on a tree. End of, end of the news. It was never condemned. Yeah. And in that sense, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that this work exists in the multiple platforms because it allows us to engage several different audiences and then it travels. So I'm not interested if it's a German story or not. I, oh. I think it's a, it's a human story. 
yeah. and to find a conceptual approach to make this speak globally. Um, that is, that is, I think we, we have been lucky with that. We've been working hard. Um, we took a lot of risks because a lot of people could have just walked off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it all had, it has, all, it was always a live scene. If you shoot a film with, with live audience and then they come in front of camera, there's so many things that can, can go wrong. But again, as with the Flatbush Zombies, the collective enters the train and they go on a journey. And, you know, during that train ride, you change the people on board and that can also be technicians. Um, and they go back and they multiply the experience and then the project multiplies the experience. Yeah, so in a way, my projects of recent time are also little protest projects. Yeah, because um, they might be not so loud, um, but they try to involve people to be ambassadors of a larger story. Yeah, and uh, the biggest ambassadors are, of course, the audiences. Yeah, and in that sense, this is also what I think I'm, I'm happy to, to be working and contributing with. Um, because we, in a way, we need to do this together. Yeah, there are huge challenges. I mean, 2020 has been a really rough year. Um, I think it's also a year with strong reflections and strong actions. But um, it is a year that needs all force, all civil force. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that um, you know, the responsibility of everyone has to be engaged. You know, the, no one should sit as a silent bystander. And so I think that, that, you know, whether it's citizens, that's the audience, the curators in the institution, the museum. And, um, you know, one last question I would have for you in, I mean, you showed the work in Toronto, you showed it in other places, but what has been the reception of that work, like in terms of German institutions or when you've proposed it, let's say to others, do you feel that there's still that, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see now that we're in 2020, whereas, you know, will your phone ring? Because everybody's going to suddenly feel that this is of urgency. It was of urgency in 2018 when you first did it. But I'm interested in finding out how, you know, do, do people in certain communities feel like unsure about the necessity to show the work? Or is it something that is usually welcome easily? It really depends. I would say uh, there are some um, very sensitive curators and directors of institutions that early on got in touch with me and that they're yeah supportive and interested. On the other hand, uh, I'm also dealing a lot with uh, foundations and, and public funds. And uh, that's also a political uh, a scene and, and sphere that is not so easy because in a way, projects of mine, especially in Germany, bring things to light again, or like on, in a new uh, scenario that are not so easy to digest because they will, these projects will hint to failures of systematic, um, <clears throat> systematic failures to, to treat people equally, to give them a chance, to give them a voice. And I can't say that uh, my phone is, is uh, nonstop ringing, but of course they are allies. Mm -hmm. But uh, often these allies are not necessarily in the places where these cases or atrocities or problems really, really exist. Yeah, because there's so much pressure also from another audience, from another public that would and is attacking these museums. So it's, it's interesting. Um, it's, you know, as an artist, I have to focus on the work. I can only make things available. I can also ask for collaborations with institutions. Um, hopefully now uh, some institutions will be joining the fight, mm -hmm. be jumping onto the train. Let's see. Uh, I'm not sure, to be honest. It's the responsibility of curators. It's the responsibility of board members. It's the, the responsibility of chief curators. It's the responsibility of funding bodies you know it's everybody's responsibility to change the institution and that is the real work um and i always feel that at least the audience of the power plant nobody ever ever question i mean questions meaning i've never had people saying why are you showing us this story of a you know it happened in germany it has nothing to do with us to the contrary people go 
the audience is very smart. This is what I've, I've always felt. And um, it is our shared responsibility. And of course, we live in a very, in a different, like a, a world that is made of different people. And so it's how much individuals feel that these questions are urgent, you know? And really, I, I mean, I cannot help but to think of, uh, you know, this, this uh, Berlin, the 10th Berlin Biennale that was titled, you know, we don't need another hero uh, that was curated by uh, Gabby Nokombo and, you know, and her entire team, the curatorial team, how they really catalyze these questions and the reception of that Biennale, which was, you know, some people thought there weren't enough stars, not enough, you know, but- Many it, unknown artists. Unknown artists, yeah. So maybe it is, it is time for these supposedly unknown voices, supposedly, because I, it, everything has to be taken in context. But I think when, for myself as a, as a director, chief curator, curator, when I go back to that specific um, uh, Biennale, it, it was on point. There were so many things, you know, um, when I think of Ferreli Bayer's uh, uh, work, Bias's work, you know, about Haiti, all of this is coming back. And that's the beauty of art, where artists are on the forefront of thinking often well ahead, because between the moment that you're invited by the Berlin Biennale and the realization of the work and its presentation, you know, it's two years before, so you're in 2018, you know, you're in 2017 or you're in 2016. So to me, this is, this is why I'm always so mesmerized by the ability of artists to present thought-provoking ideas. And it is our role as institutions to be open, to be listening, and to, to keep our, you know, to have a pulse about what are the things that are that are really uh, urgent, you know? Um, so we will end, but I want to. I I mean, I want to say a last few word, but I also want to give you the opportunity to say uh, to say something. What I want to say about your work and why I was so so proud and so happy to have had the opportunity to meet you and to bring you to Toronto. And now all I can think of is we need to bring the play to Toronto and to, to rethink it within the context of Canada, because we, like everyone else, have, have our weight of atrocities, of police brutality, of all of these questions. No one is safe for these questions. But um, I think, you know, you asked thought-provoking questions about what we could see as often overlooked, yet pressing social and political uh, issues. And I think what's interesting in, in, in the three works that we were lucky enough to share with our public is that um, you use your video and um, making works with video in so many different ways. It, does, it never feels repetitive. And yet at the end of the day, when you open the door and you leave the dark space of the gallery, and in our case, it was shown in the summer, you've got this glaring sun in your face and then inside of our brain, it's all of the, all of the, you, you really shake us, I mean, and you, you engage us in thinking about the world that we're about to enter as we leave the exhibition space. And for me, that's exactly the type of uh, works that I want to engage our audience. It's not always easy because, you know, you, you go to a museum and sometimes, you know, the thought that the museum is this happy place is completely fictitious. And I think it's also important for, for um, audiences to realize when we enter in a museum, we are also entering in that legacy, you know, of imperialism, of categorizations, of taking objects, of uh, putting them in boxes, of not giving voices to the true owners. So it opens a, a wide, um, a, a, un grand champ, of questioning. So I really want to thank you. Sorry, I had to start speaking French because I can't think of the word in English. But I really want to thank you for taking time to, um, you know, help us to dive deeper into your practice and especially into again. And I really want to leave the last words to you because, you know, 
I, I do everything I do for artists and for audiences. So it would be, it would, I would be remiss to have the last word. So I would like to give you the last words, Mario. Digitan, thank you very much. It was really a true highlight and yeah, unique experience to work with you and your team at the power plant. And it's, uh, I think it was very meaningful for me to also present this in North America and Canada and to test out um, if this project can hold up. And uh, the conversations we had with your team, but also with the audience, give me hope that um, art can be very meaningful and very helpful to tackle certain issues. Also to, you know, be a community in an institution and to think together and go out and disperse and uh, still think about it. I think this alliance between artists and museum, I felt very strong in Toronto and I would always return. <laughs> I would always come back. Um, and yeah, I think you do marvelous work. It was really an honor to show these works also in the way we did them, the sizes, the sound, um, the, the, the parkour. So I think each work also needs a certain space and you, you gave us this space and I guess we all made good use of it. So um, I think it was a powerful um, message we sent. And for the audience of tonight's talk, um, you can also watch uh, again mm -hmm. on the Art Basel platform through K KOW Gallery. So if you got interested through our lively conversation, please feel free to, to watch the piece, even though it's meant to be a two-channel video installation in a larger space. Um, there are a few exhibitions coming up across Europe where it will be featured. So thank you, everybody, even though we can't see you. Um, glad, glad we had an audience. And until next time in, uh, in person. Yes, so thank you to the audience for joining us. Thank you for, to KOV. Uh, for putting this together. And, um, and once again, thank you, Mario. And uh, <clears throat> keep doing your work and keep being this voice uh, for all of us and enlightening us and keeping us thinking and active. So thank you and good afternoons to, to our North American people and good evening to uh, everyone in Europe and the rest of the world, you know, whichever you know, uh, time uh, frame you're in. Thank you. Thank you.